it's got to be Dr. Will. Oh, thank uh, God. Thank I, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank the Lord. Thank you, Gregor, for being you. I don't think it's really all that close. No, I it's mean. not. It's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, welcome to episode 67, the Max Pacioretty edition of the podcast. I'm quite certain I would have never used him as the athlete for this episode had he still been a captain of the hated Montreal Canadiens. But since he's now a member of the Vegas Golden Knights competing against the Habs in the playoffs, it's totally fair game. And speaking of that series, it is absolutely the biggest crock of you-know-what that some genius in Toronto recently decided it was a great idea to light up the CN Tower in Montreal Canadian colors in support of them, even though they beat the Maple Leafs in the first round. Think about that for a second. Toronto's biggest rival are the Habs, and they collapsed and lost following a 3-1 series lead. Let's be honest, they choked. Yet we're supporting Montreal and Toronto? What? Of course, there's folks who wrongly claim that it's the Canadian National Tower. I know it is, of course. Not the Toronto Tower. Yes, obviously, that's, that is correct. But what's not correct, it's in Toronto. That's a load of hogwash. Great word, by the way, that no one ever says anymore. It's in Toronto. Nice spin zone. It's absolutely so stupid and ridiculous. Do you really think, you really think in Montreal they'd ever in a trillion years let up anything to support Toronto? Not a chance. In a bazillion years, they do that. Or say, in New York, would they let up the Statue of Liberty somehow with Boston Red Sox colors? No way in the world would they do that. It's an absolute joke that Toronto lit up the CN Tower in Habs colors, and you know that someone in a suit totally patted themselves on the back, thinking what they did was a genius, amazing move, even though they probably know nothing about sports. It also dovetails with my correct take that it's absolutely ridiculous to cheer for the Canadian team if they're your biggest rival. No, no. Sure, I'd cheer for the Flames or, or the Jets if they were still in it. That's fine. But not a chance in hell I'd ever pull from Montreal or Ottawa because they're my team's biggest rival. It's not a hard concept, people. My next guest is a big sports fan, and I'll be sure to bring up this ludicrousness. Is that even a word? In our discussion. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, now welcome on a great old friend of mine, Bragg, Gregor Chisholm. I used to work with him at TSN many moons ago, and he's been the Blue Jays reporter for MLB and now for the Toronto Star. He's also a huge Larry David fan, so we'll get to that later. Welcome to the H-Dog Pod, Gregor. Thanks for having me, man. Blast from the past. It's great great to be on. It's been, it's been uh, too long, so it's good to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm stoked to have you on. Uh, well, let's start with the Blue Jays, uh, obviously. Um, you know, since you sadly abandoned me years ago at TSN, uh, how did you get the uh, get that Blue Jays gig all those years ago? Yeah, I was uh, well when I first started at TSN. I guess probably maybe like four or five months in. Like I started with an internship through a program at Ryerson, and um, then uh, as you know, I would have taken a part time job, um, kind of worked doing school and TSN at the same time. And then the summer right after graduation, um, I got an internship originally with Major League Baseball. Uh, to cover the Blue Jays that summer. And then that was kind of what I, w- I was doing both at the same time for a little bit, working at TSN and doing the Jays thing whenever they had home games. Uh, and just kind of fell in love with the beach side. I mean, that's it was kind of one of the reasons why I moved to Toronto from the Maritimes in the first place was was the goal of eventually covering a beat, either the Blue Jays or the Raptors. The Jays are my first choice and was lucky enough to kind of get my foot in the door that way. And then I uh, just kind of slowly went from there. Like I, I think my my first job right after that was at the Toronto Sun for a few years, and then eventually the the main gig opened up at Major League Baseball in 2010, and and, and I uh, moved over for for that role. Man, 2010. It's already been 11 years. Good grief! I I always say that. So it's just it's crazy how uh, time flies. It's unbelievable. 
I know, I know. I was just thinking about that actually before we started this, because I mean, my my first year at TSN would have been like 2006 going into 2007. So yeah, it's it's been a while, man. It's been a while. It's making me feel old. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, how is it covering the, the 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 team that you used to? Obviously, obviously, you're a huge fan of the Blue Jays. You know, uh, now that you're covering the team, does that fandom go away? Like, uh, how 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 does that uh, sort of work? Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. It, I think some of it, it it's natural. Um, I mean, that I do remember it being a little bit of a challenge back in those early days, especially when I was an intern. Like, I remember walking into the Jays clubhouse for the first time and just kind of being, uh, you know, starstruck by the entire experience. Because, I mean, it was it was it had been a goal of mine for so long. And I had been such a Blue Jays fan and baseball fan in general so many years growing up. And I mean, in the Maritimes, I, I didn't get a ton of exposure to actually being able to witness it even in person. Like I would usually try every summer that I had a friend in Boston. I would usually try and schedule a trip down there to coincide with when the Jays were playing. But outside of those few games a year. I mean, it just wasn't an option as a Maritimer to, to be able to go to the ballpark every day. And so moving to Toronto, that was one of the coolest things when I was going to school was actually being able to go to a whole bunch of games back in the day when they had that like $99 season pass. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I went to 50, 60 games my, my first year in Toronto. And then uh, to actually go and be able to do it in the job. Sure, there was, there was a, a transition period there. Uh, but I think what you know, you don't lose your fandom for the sport, uh, and you don't lose your fandom for like really good storylines. You just you just do eventually lose your certainly lose your rooting interest, and and you need to in order to be objective, uh, to look at things kind of less emotionally. Uh, and then there's the flip side that you just kind of get to know these guys a little bit more. I mean, uh, you, you probably know about too too much about the subjects you cover. You don't you don't view them in quite the same way you would necessarily as a fan when you sometimes put them up on a pedestal. Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, these are just just regular guys who happen to be uh, very good at one thing. And there are some guys who are who are great individuals, and then there are some guys who aren't. And so you, you just start looking at it definitely through a, a, a different lens. And I would say probably like didn't didn't take long. I probably started to lose that by the end of my internship and then certainly within my first year on the beat um you start looking at it in a different way and tell us in full absolute detail the, the, those guys who are absolutely the worst and completely ripped them on this podcast no i'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm just kidding. no but have, have you actually had some athletes uh, who are some of the fave guys that you've uh, had to cover oh man uh i mean I, I wouldn't have said it at the time uh because he was a challenge to cover but uh i mean looking back now there's there's no doubt in my mind that the, the guy i enjoyed covering the most was batista uh i mean he, he was it was challenging um you know he he wasn't always the most approachable guy um he didn't necessarily just play along with with dumb questions which which i eventually found refreshing but i mean he really kind of made you work he needed to go in uh, you needed to have, uh, you know, reasonable things for him to talk about. Uh, you needed to have your background. Uh, otherwise, because he, he didn't suffer fools. I mean, you saw that in the field. He was the exact same kind of way uh, in the clubhouse with the media and, and dealing with other people that way. And just, I mean, the, the performance spoke for itself over those years. Um, but I mean, just, just an interesting individual in terms of interviews as well, because he wasn't someone who just stuck with the cliches. Um, you could get something uh, pretty... Uh, interesting out of him a lot of times and he wasn't afraid to speak his mind so definitely definitely the one I enjoyed covering the most as as a player um but I mean there were guys who I would consider you know back in the day I probably would have would have had a a slightly different opinion on that because it was a challenge and so there I mean Ricky Romero was an all-time great uh Casey Jansen was was one of my favorites uh for sure uh and then kind of in the more recent years I mean it's it's the the current core 
to a certain extent, still getting to know them because the clubhouse hasn't been open for so long. And, right. uh, you know, this wave, we still just don't really have a full appreciation for what these guys guys are like. So I, I think a lot of my, my previous ties are would be stronger with, with that previous, uh, you know, uh, back-to-back team, the team that went to the playoffs. Uh, and then early in those earlier years when Anthopolis was kind of just getting started. Uh, how, what about uh, Mununori Kawasaki? Kawasaki. You know what? I, I, I got tired of the Kawasaki shtick uh, pretty quickly, I have to admit. I don't know. I, I didn't get as much enjoyment out of it as a lot of people did. It, it seemed too much like, uh, I don't know. Like he, he played into it. He enjoyed it. He liked being the butt of people's jokes. He was there. He wanted to be the comedic relief. Uh, but there was a certain like mascot element to it to me right. that I, I just didn't uh, always like. Like people People went to him. Uh, for those lines that seemed to, that was, it was so almost like Joe Biagini to a certain extent. I got, I got tired of that shtick a little bit when he would always talk about finger painting and butterflies after games. Uh, and so maybe Kawasaki was a bit in the same way, but, but he's a good dude for sure. Actually, for, I'd forgotten about uh, Joe Biagini uh, altogether. It's just so funny how like you can be so invested. I often say that about like, uh, for example, uh, like a Darcy Tucker of the Maple Leafs, for example, back in the day, obviously everybody loved him, uh, you know, huge hero in Toronto. And then he goes to Colorado and you basically forget he even played pretty much, right? It's like uh, with Joey Eugenie yeah. as an example, not that everyone you know thought of him in the same uh, breath as uh, Tucker, of course. But yeah, these athletes, you're like so invested in them and, and their performances and then they're gone. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll always remember Biagini because he was the ultimate scrum killer. Uh, he's the guy I always remember, especially, I would always get a kick out of it because especially when you're on the road, you would have, um, you know, I, I remember a, a game in Boston. Um, he, he pitched, I think he's, I don't know if he started, it might've been one of his rare starts. Um, uh, but either way, he, he came out and did a scrum. Um, and, uh, and there was a couple of the Boston area reporters who didn't know anything about Biagini. They just were looking for a quote. Um, and they didn't really know what kind of guy he was. And he's, this is the kind of guy you would ask one question off the top and he would literally talk for six, seven minutes, uh, about really, really random stuff, but it would still be on the same first question. And so you would see these guys who would, who were just going in for a quick quote and then they would just slowly around like the four or five minute mark, just start backing away, <laughs> like just not, not just needing to get out of there because they didn't know what they were witnessing. And that confusion that they always saw personally cracked me up a lot that's funny i have to ask of course about uh it's so funny how the first iteration of this guy on the blue jays people didn't like him and then of course when he came back there's you know definitely people were not happy but then by, by the end of it everyone loved him uh john gibbons gibby uh just a beauty i assume yeah no absolutely man i had a bit of a different perspective on him coming in because um, I, I didn't have the same ties to him that a lot of people on the beat did at that time. I mean, I, I was around for one of his years, the first go around when I was an intern, but a lot of times I was in the visiting clubhouse that year. Uh, that was more my role as kind of an intern was covering the visiting team more than the Jays. So I, I didn't have a relationship with him at all. And when he came back the second time, I mean, I, I was surrounded by reporters who, who had already dealt with him for, for many number of years. And uh, ironically enough, I had, I had built a pretty strong relationship with, with John Farrell during his time here and during his two years. And uh, I probably have more positive things to say than, than most Toronto fans do about him. Uh, but so the, it was, I, I came at it from a little bit of a different perspective. And so it, it took Gibby a little while to win me over because the reporter side of me, 
uh, early on was a little bit, I wanted the information. I didn't, I didn't want all the jokes. I just wanted, I wanted to be able to fill my notebook. I wanted to know what was going on with the team. Um, and it sometimes frustrated me early on that it was hard to get clear answers out of him. And, but I mean, the guy's just, you're right. I mean, he's such a beauty and he's got such a, he's got a, such a fun character and personality to him that, I mean, that feeling didn't last long. I mean, Gibby's humor uh, is up my alley. I get a, I get a kick out of him all the time. And to be perfectly honest with you, putting all that aside, I actually think he's, uh, he's one of the, the best managers the Jays have had. Um, yeah. and, and I say that because I think he was great at managing a bullpen. Um, not just bringing in guys at the right time, but you know, if you speak to guys in the clubhouse, you know, one thing relievers really that doesn't get a lot of attention, but that, that they talk about a lot is it's not just getting into the game. It's, it's getting up and warmed up and, and guys, a toll can be taken on guys that managers are consistently calling down to the pen, telling a guy to get up in a hurry, get warmed up and then not going to him. So we, we pay attention to the game logs and all that type of stuff to see how much a guy has pitched. Well, that, that other part has a, has a certain wear and tear on it too. And from everything I was told over the years, uh, Gibby was kind of masterful at that. Like almost all the time, uh, if he got you up, uh, and hot in the bullpen, he was coming, he was going to use you. And, you know, there's some other creative things he did over the years. Like I remember the first go around, um, you know, it was a little bit before I had it this time. Um, he put Vernon Wells into the leadoff spot um, because it was Vernon, I think was struggling at the time. He was trying to spark something, but he, he's, he's gone through things that were, he got the reputation of being a, a guy who was anti-analytics. I don't necessarily think he was anti-analytics. I think he was anti some of the, the new modern stuff to the extent where a lot of the decisions are being removed from the dugout and, and being made more at the front office level. I think he hates that. Uh, but I think about the day-to-day stuff. He was actually, he, he wasn't quite as old school as, as people tried to label him as. I think he was, he was open-minded to more than things, to more things that people gave him credit for. I think that he, it would be definitely, it'd be great if he was back in baseball as a manager. Cause he, like you said, he, he was really good. It's actually funny that uh, one of the things he did, I remember in a playoff game that now is, would be common, commonplace in baseball. But at the time people were ha- upset about it. Sorry. Uh, when he took a RA Dickey after four and two thirds innings in the playoff game, it was like people were so, so uh, upset about that. But it's like nowadays that's totally commonplace. So, yeah, he definitely did things. Uh, actually, I personally thought he was a great manager. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and I remember the confusion around that. I was confused, too. And, there, you know, there's two things there. I think it was it showed the, you know, they absolutely needed to get out of that Texas team with a win, obviously. Um, but you're right. I mean, he was he was conscious of the momentum. He didn't trust R.A. Dickey at all anyway. So that, that, that kind of played into it a little bit as well. I think he had the least amount of trust in R.A. Uh, than anybody on his pitching staff. And so he wanted to go to Price. But the other part was that I think he really, really wanted Stroman to, to start the game uh, in game five. Um, and ironically enough, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a, a ballsy pick too because Price was the guy that you had acquired for those big moments. But it, people might forget a little bit. I mean, Price was struggling at that time too. And so Stroman was a guy who kind of came on uh, you know, there was lightning in the bottle for the Jays. He, he came in in September of that year and then just kept rolling. I mean, going into the playoffs, he was he was the best pitcher they had. And so I think that decision was, you're right. I mean, he was ahead of his time in, in the, the early hook, but I think it was also designed as a way to, to provide the perfect excuse to, to get Stroman to start in game five, too. I like that. I didn't, I didn't even thought of it in that perspective. But yeah, absolutely. That makes that makes total sense. Uh, I, I always like to ask this uh, of uh, guests who have, uh, you know, covered athletes or, you know, are on, on camera, that type of thing. Uh, uh, any embarrassing moments that you've just been like, oh, crap. As soon as you said it or, or did it, you're like, oh, I want to crawl into the hole right now. Uh, I, I've been, I guess, somewhat fortunate that I, I haven't had too many of those. I do remember one with, with Farrell. 
uh, early on in my career where I just kind of overestimated the, uh, I underestimated how angry he was after a game and, and overestimated the fact that uh, we had a strong relationship. And so uh, I think I asked him, there was something to do with the umpiring. Uh, and I, I didn't even ask him a question. I made a statement, that's something along the lines of, I don't know, it was bad call or something in that, or you guys seemed like you guys got screwed in that fifth inning, whatever it was. Uh, and he, he kind of blew me up because it wasn't a question. And it was, uh, do you have a question? Is you just making state? Anyways, it was, it was just like back and forth for like 30, 45 seconds. Uh, and I just didn't go into it as, as prepared as I, as I should have. But I mean, it was, it was pretty minor. Uh, my, my stuff more comes, especially now that I'm a columnist, it's, it's more, uh, the reaction and stuff I get on social media from, from people. It's, I get more back and forth. I try to avoid them. Uh, but I, I get more uh, heat. Uh, that way than I do like usually in like the clubhouse and stuff like that. I find uh, if you were to like engage those people who are, especially if they're trying to be trolls or whatever, and just like basically laugh them off and be like, Hey man, it's all good. They, they really quickly uh, change their tune when you acknowledge them instead of like, you know, cause they, they want, they want that reaction. The, the worst thing you could do to those types of people is to come back with being angry with them. Cause that's exactly what they want. So to, to either ignore them or to come back in a, in a polite way, drives them crazy. You know, it, it's, I always find that with like guys like, say, for example, in the States, like Skip Bayless or whatever, and fans, you know, he'll put a tweet out, and fans, uh, you know, will respond in kind, and it's like, if you, if you truly wanted to upset Skip Bayless, don't say anything to him, and that would upset him. The fact that you're so mad at him, he loves that. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And it's interesting, because I'm like the exact opposite like kind of a columnist opinionated person than that. Like I, I, I actually, uh, that's the part of the job. I probably hate the least. Like there is that stereotype because there are so many, so, so many of them like Skip Bayless who, who just really love that attention. I, I don't really love the attention when it comes to stuff like that. I'm just out there kind of stating my opinion on, on how I feel and how I've been kind of following the game for so many years. And so it was interesting to me uh, a little bit to see like when I made the transition from report for, from reporter uh, at a more team-friendly site where it was just strictly down the middle, um, you know, I didn't state my opinion a whole lot. I, I did on social media, but not nearly as much in my writing and kind of more just down the middle. Here, Here's the info, and you guys can make up your own mind. In my new job, it's certainly more um, a new job. I've been in, doing it for a couple of years now. But in a columnist job, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I get paid to, to state my opinion a lot more strongly and really, really say how I feel. And so... The interesting thing I find in today's climate is, is how many people just love jumping all over that. Like they uh, just immediately want to start arguing. And so mm -hmm. I engage probably a little bit less than, than I, I did before simply because I don't, I don't particularly enjoy those, those back and forth because, uh, I mean, as, as any journalist knows, I mean, a lot of times the, the most opinionated people on, on Twitter are the ones who haven't even really read your story. They're, they're basing it off of, you know, 180 characters in, in a tweet where you're trying to sum up your position. And really, there's a lot more to it. But anyways, I'm, I'm ranting about that. But hey. <laughs> no, I love it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, basically that was a vehicle for me to say you are the uh, version of Skip Bayless. No, I'm just kidding. You're, you're definitely not. But, uh, you're, you do some great work. Great work. Uh, let's go to the current iteration of the Blue Jays and let's talk initially of some pauses and then get into to the negatives because of course unfortunately sure. as we're recording this uh the thursday of the yankee series or unfortunately there are some negatives surrounding the team but vlad guerrero jr unbelievable season got lost a lot of weight in the offseason how uh amazing is it to see him blossom into the guy that a couple years ago everyone thought he was definitely going to be right away yeah i mean it really has been something to watch and i'll admit i was a little bit skeptical of the whole weight loss story um if for no other reason then i mean 
I kept remembering that this was the exact same narrative we entered last year with. Um, I mean, spent a lot of time leading, going into that abbreviated season. And before that, what was originally the, the spring training, uh, spent a lot of time writing about, you know, Guerrero's uh, supposed, you know, newfound dedication to fitness and the amount of weight he had lost. Uh, in spring training, it did look like he had lost some weight, but I thought it was a little bit overblown. And then by the time the minicamp started in summer, I mean, he had put it all back on. And so this offseason, when I heard a lot of the same, you know, comments from him, um, I've, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, throw away the opposite of that, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah, I screwed that one up. But, um, I mean, I just, I just wasn't buying it. Um, and then the performance came, obviously, and it started in spring training with how just good and athletic he looked. And I mean, now you're clearly talking about a guy who easily is one of the top players in baseball and is going to be potentially be in the conversation, uh, you know, potentially almost every year as an MVP, MVP candidate. I mean, he really is that good. And it's, I mean, he was in that group with, with Tatis and, uh, you know, Juan Soto and Acuna and, and Atlanta and, and I mean, now he, he certainly belongs in that group. I mean, last year we spent so much time about comparing him with the numbers against those guys and kind of trying to figure out why he wasn't there. Um, and now he is there. And, and the remarkable thing is the guy is still just 22 years old. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's still just getting started. Uh, and it's almost comical now uh, when we look back to not the panic and criticism over things like launch angles and stuff like that. But, I, I mean, there I think there was some skepticism. I don't think anyone... I think the, the the narrative that got overblown this year is that, you know, people were writing him off as a bust or didn't think he was going to pan out. I don't think, I don't think there were too many fans and, and media members who were actually saying that. I, I think people were just talking at the time, about how his numbers, you know, weren't really reflective of the group that he was supposed to be in. I think people thought he was going to still be good. Uh, I'm not so sure people thought he was going to be quite this good this early after last season's performance though i mean it's been quite the turnaround absolutely and then obviously this bat has been absolutely incredible but uh, his uh play at first base uh, that has to be uh, i'm just i'm blown away with i think he might uh, if i'm not mistaken he may maybe has three errors this season if i'm not if i'm not mistaken and it's like he actually has been playing really really well at first as well yeah that's and to me that's that's the biggest surprise in all this <clears throat> is that I, I i didn't see that coming uh i mean i i Figured that this was going to be a learning year for him at first base. We saw him do it last year as well, but we, you know, frequently saw him last year uh, stray way too far off the off the bag at first, trying to field grounders and leaving no one to cover first base. I mean, that seemed to be happening once a week with him, and I, you know, I figured there'd be a lot more of the same with that. Um, yeah, I thought his hands were okay. Like I thought he'd be okay with with picking balls out of the dirt, but I just, I just. I wasn't necessarily even sold that first base was going to be a long-term solution for him. I thought it was someone you were going to have to put there uh, and be a liability for a while. And then I figured the upside was eventually maybe he could turn into Edwin Encarnacion at first base. And, um, you know, Edwin was fine at first. He wasn't great, but he was fine, particularly at digging balls out of the dirt. He was pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, but, I mean, Vladdy's obviously way better uh, than Eddie was over there. And uh, I think he's only going to get better. And now it's, I mean, last year we – 
big conversation was, you know, what, what position is, is this guy going to ever end up at? And is it going to be a situation where because of his body type and because of his inability to play defense, is this guy going to be permanently a DH at age 24? And that really limits your roster, roster flexibility and things that you can do. And, and I mean, now those questions just don't exist. I mean, uh, he's obviously the, the first baseman of the present and the future. He's going to stay there. Um, and I mean, if he keeps going, if he keeps trending in this direction, not only is he going to stay there, I mean, he, he potentially could be a gold glove caliber type first baseman. So uh, I think the Jays were smart to, to not, you know, there's some talk earlier this year about maybe putting him back a little bit at third base. Uh, I thought that would have been a mistake. I think the, the smart move is to just put him at the position they think he's going to be long term, let him learn it and grow. Uh, and he's doing it a lot faster than I would thought. Yeah, absolutely. He's been, like I said, a fantastic uh I know when the, in the earlier in, in their regime uh, in, in tenure with the Blue Jays, uh, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins that drew the ire of a lot of fans. I personally feel if they had just been, they were sort of it was in a tough situation. They came in and they were, uh, you know, a playoff team, and so they were sort of were like, are they going for it? Are they not? So they were in a tough little spot. They of course made the playoffs that second year, and then they I think if they had just been a bit more transparent and said like, hey, we're rebuilding. I think people would have been a little bit better with them, but uh, obviously now the, the the opinion of them has certainly shifted considerably. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, really. I mean, I think they suffered from some communication issues early on. I mean, they, they, the situation they inherited on one hand was really good. Uh, you obviously would love to, if you, as a new executive, come in and take over a winning team, um, which is what they inherited going into 2016, and obviously they made it back to the postseason. That's ideal in a lot of ways, but then on the flip side, I mean, it was a completely opposite uh, of what Shapiro originally thought he was signing up for when he agreed to that deal before uh, before any of the, the trade deadline of 2015 happened. I mean, this that looked like an organization that was immediately going into a rebuild. And then, uh, you know, suddenly they had to shift gears a little bit. And, and I think they could have done a bit better job of it back then. I, I think there was a way to uh, bridge the gap between that, those postseason years and um, and remaining a bit more competitive, it really it really seems like they just stuck with the status quo uh, and, and hope that it would it would kind of pan out as opposed to uh, reinvesting a little bit because I do think you can rebuild, especially in baseball, um, and the fact that, you, that the draft is so deep and and I mean guys are years away, so getting a number one pick, I mean it's it's, it's obviously much better to have a number one pick than a number twenty seven, for example. But I mean compared to other leagues, the the impact is is not quite the same. So I think you can rebuild and 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 retool on the field at the same time. Uh, but that being said, the, the more important I think vision is the longer term one because uh, this organization did need to have more of a, a long-term scope uh, of what they were trying to do and um, you have to be pretty impressed with, with what they've assembled I mean I, I was pretty critical of them in the early going for uh, you know some of the trades that they made and some of the moves they made but when you when you're talking about amassing talent at the minor league level and allowing that group to grow uh, I mean they've done a pretty darn good job of that and so now uh, I still think the toughest test is to come. Um, I, I think the easier part is is the rebuilding part, where you're just amassing, you're just stockpiling prospects, you're trading off your guys on expiring contracts, um, and and trying to get something for them in return. It's essentially you're getting a bunch of lottery tickets. Some of those lottery tickets are going to hit, and, and you're going to look pretty good. Um, but the the challenge is, you know, be, moving beyond what is now. Uh, a 500 team, slightly above 500 team, 
uh, and turning that into a team that is legitimately a postseason contender year after year. That's where, that's where it gets a little bit more difficult uh, because you're talking about bringing in, you know, more high profile ads. You're taking on free agents that come with way more risks. Um, and you can always, uh, you know, derail, derail a lot of your plans. If you, if you add a couple of big contracts that don't pan out and it really limits your long-term flexibility, suddenly the, the young core isn't you're not able to complement it in the ways you want and, and the future doesn't look as bright. So that, that that's the stage that the Jays currently find themselves in. I think they've been wise to, to do it in stages, you know, starting with Ryu, um, you know, this past off season, obviously with Springer and, and to a lesser extent, Simeon, because he's only signed to a one year deal. Uh, but I would expect another wave this off season. And I think that's the way to do it because if you can spend money in free agency uh, and get the bulk of your ads done that way, um, it makes sense to do it when you're when you're a resource uh, rich organization like the Blue Jays are, so that you're not giving up that uh, you know next wave of minor league talent. So this can become a bit more of a sustainable thing as opposed to a short one or two year window. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Springer, George Springer. That's hopefully he gets back here and he's only he's only played to this uh, point four games uh, for the season for the Jays. So that's hopefully he can get back and an already potent lineup would be that much better. Obviously, with him uh, in the lineup. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, in the last uh, 15 games against AL East foes, and uh, as of this recording, they haven't, they haven't even played the Baltimore Orioles yet, so hopefully they can beat up on them. But the Jays are 4-11 and the last 15 against the AL East. They're blowing a lot of games. The bullpen's just been shredded with injuries. Uh, what does Charlie Montoya and the organization do with the bullpen? Because, my goodness, it's been – it was the best in baseball the first month of the year, and they were definitely probably a little bit better than they probably actually were at that point. But this has been an absolute train wreck the last couple of months. It has, and it has the risk of derailing the season, that's for sure. Um, I mean, we've seen that over the last couple of weeks. I mean, this this team really, its, it's record should be a lot better than it is. I admittedly probably have a different view uh, on this than most people, and I wrote about it uh, yesterday, and it's just that – I, I just think this is the reality that the Jays have to live with for right now. I mean, the, the, the reaction that I keep getting through emails and on social media is that, you know, the Jays need to make a trade right now. They need to do something right now. Baseball just really doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, I know fans and readers are, are tired of hearing that because they hear the same thing every year. But the reason they hear it every year is because it, it's just the way, it's just a fact. I mean, you go through not just the history of this team, go through the history of almost every team out there. It's very rare that deals of significance get done in May and June. Um, they happen sometimes. It's, it's not uh, unheard of. Uh, but the vast majority of the time, it just doesn't happen right now. And um, so I don't think an immediate trade is on the cards, at least not for an in, a huge impact guy. I mean, there are there are tinkering moves you can do in 2016. They added Jason Grilly at the beginning of June. That was essentially a glorified waiver claim. It was a guy who was really struggling, uh, came over to, to the Jays and, and then figured things out and turned things around. You, you can take flyers on guys like that at this time of year, but I don't think you're making a, a serious move. Uh, until you at least get into July. And so this team's going to have to survive for a little while longer. And the other thing I wouldn't do is I wouldn't make a reactionary move and just say, throw Nate Pearson in the bullpen, which I've heard a lot of people say too. You know, the question to me isn't, you know, is Nate, the Blue Jays a better team with, with Nate Pearson on the roster? I mean, I think the answer is obviously yes. I mean, Nate Pearson is better uh, than Michael Beasley or any of the options that the Jays are going with. Uh, down in the Jeremy Beasley, Michael Beasley. Yeah, I was thinking uh, that the my, basketball my, player. Yeah. My basketball references <laughs> mixed up. Yeah, well, 
Uh, I don't think we're going to need to be talking about Beasley for much longer, so I don't think it's going to be going to be much of an issue. Uh, but I mean, obviously, the Jays would be a better uh, team with Pearson over a guy like that in the bullpen. Uh, but to me, that, that I, it's not worth sacrificing potentially his long-term future for. And I mean, uh, Nate Pearson is a guy who you want to become uh, a regular contributor, to, a prime regular contributor to your starting rotation, and he has not thrown uh, a full season as a starter in his in his professional career. And so, I mean, this is a guy who's only really had a base of 100 innings in a season. Um, and he needs to get his innings up. And it, if you make the short-sighted move now, saying, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do what the Jays did back in 2014 with Aaron Sanchez and just put him in the bullpen right now," well, he doesn't have the body of work to, to um, you know, to to build from. Uh, so that means next year, if you're gonna want him in a starting role, uh, he's essentially where he was like still a couple of years ago. Where I mean, you're you're gonna deal with an innings limit. Uh, forget about you know late August or September. If you started him on on day one, you'd, you'd have to be shutting him down um, by like late July. Right. And this is going to be like a two year transition for him. So you know I think at some point in time he could become an option for the bullpen. But right now, in my mind, he needs to be out there every five days, uh, getting into a routine. And then once he gets his innings up there, at least to an acceptable amount. Um, then maybe you look to make a move where you put him in the bullpen uh, for the stretch run in, in late August and going into September, and, and you hope that he becomes a big contributor that way. Uh, but I wouldn't make, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell the farm right now just to, to try and get that done as, as kind of this patchwork solution because I also don't think he's going to solve all the Jays' problems down there. I mean, they need more than one guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need multiple fixes down there. It's not an easy fix. It's going to have to. There's going to have to be some help brought in from outside the organization. But the one, the one positive here is that the Jays really are. I mean, I know this has been talked about a lot too, but the Jays really are finishing up a very difficult stretch of games. Yes. <laughs> um, and their schedule to date has been one of the toughest in the major leagues. And I know nobody wants to hear about, you know, pinning their hopes on, on being able to beat the Baltimore Orioles, but you're right. I mean, the fact is they have not played the Orioles uh, yet. They have a lot of games that they could potentially beat up on with them. But then there's, there's also a series against like other struggling organizations like Detroit that are coming up. I mean, the, the second half of their schedule, goes from what was one of the toughest schedules in baseball to one of the easiest ones. And so um, I don't think it's going to be that difficult for them to continue to tread water here for another few weeks if they can beat up on some of these lower teams. Uh, And all they really need to do is hang around for another two, three weeks in order to justify another kind of big round of of upgrades at the deadline. And so I don't think they're in as bad of a situation as some people think, uh, but they do need to get through it because if the trend keeps going the way it is right now, they also could have the bullpen completely uh, lose the season on them. And and that's also just a reality, but the guys internally are going to have to fix it for now. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Blue Jays have uh, seven of nine games against Baltimore. Obviously, uh, you know they got to beat up on them. If, should they crater against them and you know like win two games or something, which I don't think will happen, that's when things will get ugly. But I, 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 I do believe, as frustrating as it is, you know, as a fan, especially losing to AL East foes, that uh, they are in a better shape here. And I think their run differential, you know, is like you know, plus fifty. So. Hopefully here, then go on a bit of a run, and uh, like obviously people forget that first playoff year years ago in 2015, they were basically a 500 team when Alex Anthopoulos made all those deals in late July. So there's definitely still time here to uh, to right the ship for the Blue Jays. Yeah, no, absolutely. The one difference though is that uh, you know the the run differential, the schedule, the opportunity in the division is all the same in my mind from 2015. 
but the one undeniable part is, I mean, there's there's a difference between I think that front office and the current front office. I think the I think Anthopoulos was was more inclined to to make those big type of moves for sure. the here and now uh, versus these guys. The other part was, uh, you know, uh, I think Anthopoulos at that time also saw the writing on the wall. I yep. mean, and uh, Beeson was already announced as being on his way out. Um, around the time of the trade deadline was around the time that reports started to surface that Shapiro was on his way. And so, I mean, if I'm Anthopoulos and then too, I would have seen the writing on the wall. A new, a new president usually means a regime change as at GM as well. You might as well see what you can get with your, your shiny prospects and make a big run. So I'm not expecting a deadline like 2015, but that doesn't, I mean, those only come around, you know, once every 20, 30 years, it seems where a team goes quite that all in. Uh, but that doesn't mean some moves can't be made. I mean, they, they need to be made. And, and I think, think that, uh, you know, if the Jays are in the same spot right now as, as at the end of uh, July, I think you will see them uh, make some upgrades. Uh, without question, uh, shifting gears here for a sec. Father, by the way, I always find it funny when people say shifting gears uh, on a podcast or, or, or radio or something. No one ever actually talks like that. No one ever says shifting gears in our conversation. But I'm going to do that right now. Shifting gears, Greg, uh, completely in my intro, I was railing on the fact that... Uh, uh, for the Montreal Canadiens run, the CN Tower was lit up in Montreal Canadiens colors, and I thought that was the most ridiculous thing going. That, and uh, also, slash, Leaf fans who were cheering for Montreal because they're a Canadian team. I find that that's the stupidest thing. They're your biggest rival. What did you think when they, um, they, they lit up the CN Tower in Montreal Canadiens colors in Toronto? Well, it was like memes waiting to happen or something. I don't know who made that decision, but that seemed like one that would be easily mocked. I mean, it's the, I mean, it's the Habs and, and Maple Leafs, man. I mean, you just don't. I don't know. I think there was. Uh, I remember back in the day when the Jays would go through and they would do their winter tours and they would go and uh, and uh, visit. Like I mean, in Montreal, they would go to a Habs game, and I think there's a, a photo of Brett Laurie wearing a Habs jersey that went viral even back in the day. Uh, it was just like, yeah, if you're a Toronto personality, Toronto City, you just, you just you, even though they're a Canadian team, you just need to associate yourself with your own brand. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I just, uh, I, I just, I just go understand. Like people are saying, oh, it's a CN Tower, it's you know, the Canadian National Tower. It's, it's, uh, it, but it's, it's in Toronto. It's in Toronto. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There's no way in Montreal would they actually light up and support the Toronto Maple Leafs, especially when you lost when you were up three one against Montreal. Even worse than if they hadn't even played Montreal. And they did. Uh, they, lit, they lit up the CN Tower. You lost to them. Your bitter rivals. It just. Met, oh my goodness! It makes no sense to me. It's just crazy. And I also mentioned off an uh, introduction to this podcast. You're a huge Larry David stan, which is great because uh, if you weren't, uh, I don't know if we even be friends. To be honest with you, always I never understand when people are like, "Oh, I hate Larry David and Kerber enthusiasm." What are you talking about, man? It's so funny. Uh, what uh, What is your uh, some of your fave uh, Kerber enthusiasm episodes or moments in uh, in Kerb? Well, I'll tell you, the early one that got me hooked was the Wire episode uh, where, where uh, Larry was – where they were trying to get the wire in the backyard buried under the lawn and they were needing the – they needed to get approval from the neighbor and it was the whole thing where the neighbor was trying to use the relationship with, with Larry uh, to leverage it into meeting Julia Louis-Dreyfus, <laughs> uh, everything that went along with that. That was one that hooked me early on. Uh, my favorite season, just – I mean, I was, I was a huge – uh, I mean, obviously, I guess I was a huge Seinfeld fan before uh, before Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I was actually I was a late adopter to Larry David. I didn't I didn't I didn't uh, appreciate Larry David for who he was and the comedy he was and the impact he had on Seinfeld until Curb Your Enthusiasm came around. And because I always thought of Seinfeld when I was growing up in, in junior high and high school, was Seinfeld was Jerry Seinfeld. Right. Uh, I mean, that was that was the main reason of the show, and I assumed his humor was uh, the exact main reason. When in reality. 
um, I soon came to realize that because of Curb, uh, that it's actually Larry David's humor uh, that I really appreciate. And as we know, George was, was based on uh, Larry, and George is my favorite character in Seinfeld. But a lot of the best episodes uh, of Seinfeld were, uh, you know, a lot of them came from from Larry David's mind. And so, uh, yeah, when he went over and did Curb, it was it was an eye opener for me. And I was, but I was a slow adopter to it because I was like, oh, who's who's who isn't this guy? This is this co-creator of Seinfeld. And then I'm like, this this is, seems like another just Seinfeld show. And because a lot of it's improv, I found the acting at the very start to be like off-putting in the first couple episodes. And then once I actually started to watch it for what it was, I'm like, man, this is this is great. And so for me, the ultimate fandom season was was when they did the Seinfeld reunion yes. because uh, I mean, I that was just I in terms of I'm sure there was other seasons that may, might maybe had better jokes and stuff, but the storyline of that and to me it was brilliant because uh, I mean everybody wants to find ways to do uh, reunions for for like you know the classic shows and the classic movies and a lot of times it can't be done in like a, in like a good way. I mean, you, if you just bring everybody back for an episode, uh, it, it, a lot of times it doesn't really work and the hype would be way too much. Or I don't know what the friend what friends recently did where they there wasn't you know anything scripted at all. They just got them together in a room basically to talk about what they had done. I mean, the ability for for Curb to have an entire season. Uh, with with like scripts built in where these guys are playing themselves, but also, uh, you know, obviously characters uh, at the same time. I mean, the way everything came together was just brilliant. And the fact that we also got some some actual like footage from from what like a, a new Seinfeld episode would look like was I mean, it was just it was just perfect. I couldn't ask for anything more than, than what that season was. Yeah, one of my favorite jokes of all time was from from that season. Marty Funkhauser, uh, love that guy. Rest in peace, Bob Einstein. Uh, talking to Jerry uh, Jerry Seinfeld and you know making jokes with him and Jerry Seinfeld, not knowing who he is, and Larry's so annoyed that Marty's there, and uh, you know he made a really off color joke. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was just uh, so good. I also love the fact, yeah, that Cheryl, Larry David's wife, you know, was starting to really catch feelings for Jason Alexander, George Costanza, and Larry's like, "No, but you're love, you're falling in love with me. I'm George Costanza." And uh, oh yeah, no, yeah. That's, that was season seven of Curb. Uh, excellent, excellent season. Um, uh, actually, it's funny. I, I binge watched. I barely had watched Seinfeld years ago. Maybe about ten years ago. I, I got all the DVDs. Of course, uh, I wasted my money before uh, Netflix became a thing. And I binged all the episodes. Also, I think it was nine seasons of uh, Seinfeld. So I guess I went into that finale not expecting much because everyone ripped the finale. I had no qualms with it. I don't know why everyone hated it so much. How do you think that a show like that's going to end? It's not a no. It's, it's a show about nothing. They literally said it's a show about nothing. So I actually thought the finale for Seinfeld was totally fine. But I love how in Curb, because they were doing that reunion season, they were sort of making jokes about, oh yeah, we're going to correct the, the horrible finale, and you know, which obviously. In the show, got Larry David all upset. But uh, what, what do you think yeah. of the finale of Seinfeld? I thought it was great, man. Like I, I even in the at the back in the day, I remember I watched that live because I would have. I, I started watching Seinfeld religiously. I think when I was in about grade eight, uh, and I can't remember. I think it would have been about two years later. Uh, they wrapped up their final season, so there was the final two seasons. I think I, I watched as they happened live. And, um, I mean, so I, I get the anticipation and the expectations that, that people had going into it because I had the same. I thought it was perfect even back then because what I one of the things I always loved about Seinfeld was 
uh, the side characters. And mm-hmm. to me, I just thought it was brilliant that, you know, again, Larry David's creation, whereas he found a way, and he put aside the trial. I mean, the, the trial itself, you know, whatever. It's, a, it's obviously a ridiculous concept. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was a venue to get all these characters who uh, people had fallen in love with over the years and might have only made an appearance in one episode, you know, six years ago. Um, but found a way to kind of incorporate them into the script and, and did a really good job with it. And so, no, you're right. And that's exactly why the reunion on, on Curb was done so perfectly because it avoided anything like that. I mean, there's just, sometimes there's just too much hype for these events. Like, I don't really know what people would have expected from that finale. Uh, I mean, in terms of like rewatching value, it might, it's probably, it's not an episode I, I, it's not a classic episode that I want to rewatch 50 times necessarily, but in terms of wrapping up the storyline, wrapping up the series, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's it's so funny that we're both uh, in agreement on that because, like I said, generally speaking, absolutely everybody thinks that uh, that finale was awful. But I, I don't know. Like I said, maybe I just went into it with such low expectations that uh, I actually happened to like it. So, but uh, yeah, definitely, I think that's an unpopular uh, opinion without question. Uh, also, let's talk about some other sh- uh, shows that we have a, a mutual love of reality TV. And uh, uh, what do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's talk about Big Brother, I guess. Because I've had a couple of sure. different fans of Big Brother who have been on the show, and I've asked them this question. They've broken my heart, both of them. They're huge Big Brother stands. I don't know why I say stands twice this episode. Ridiculous. Uh, huge fans of them of the show, and they've broken my heart. Who would you say is the greatest Big Brother contestant of all time? Uh, for me, it's, it's got to be Dr. Will. <laughs> thank uh, God. Thank I... you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank the Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Gregor, for being you. I don't think it's really all that close. No, I it's mean, not. He, I, he's just the master manipulator. I, I'm partial to villains. I, I love villains in reality TV. Yeah. I love guys who uh, who are deceitful. Who uh, you know, I, I don't I don't like people who go into the game and talk about integrity and honor. It's a game. Just you know, backstab as much as you want, lie as much as you want, swear in anything that you want, uh, and just survive and try and get there. And so, I mean, the, the first season. He was on. And it was. It was. Oh. That's what. That's when I fell in love with with reality TV and Big Brother. So I'm partial to it that way. But then I also I, I loved when he came back for All Stars and even how better. Much it was a was a ploy. I think a lot of it was. But I mean, he played up the card of not really wanting to be there, uh, saying he was only you know he was only in it to, to try and initially get the jury. And uh, was it, I think he kind of duped a lot of people into not quite looking at him as as the the mastermind that he was and. Uh, I mean, obviously, Mike Boogie kind of benefited from that, uh, but I was I was admittedly Chilltown guys from from the start. So there there, it, there have been players who have come along over the years that I've respected on close to the same level. Like Derek is is one of the all time greats, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for what he was able to do. Uh, you know, Dan Giesling and some of the things he was able to do, uh, obviously, were really good too. Uh, Rachel, yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, to me, it's it's I mean. Uh, it starts with, with Will. Uh, and to me, he's just so good. I mean, I understand the motivation for him probably, you know, never wanting to come back because uh, once you reach that status, it's, I mean, he did it once in, in All-Stars where he came in with that reputation and survived. Uh, trying to do that a third time would be pretty difficult. It'd be impossible, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, but, but both people who I've asked this to, they said uh, that it was Derek who was the best. And don't get me wrong, Derek was a fantastic player. But he only had to play one season and, you know, uh, obviously there was all sorts of video vetoes and everything. Will's original, original season, there was no vetoes. And uh, it was just so much harder of a game than, uh, as you mentioned, going on to All-Stars as the only previous winner of All-Stars. 
and somehow surviving that, going into the final four and getting his buddy uh, Mike Boogie, to, uh, or at least buddy at the time, Mike Boogie, uh, the victory was was amazing. And uh, yeah, so yeah, not quite buddies anymore. That crazy uh, controversy with that, eh? So what's the exact story? So Boogie basically wanted uh, Doctor Will to go on an amazing race with him, and Doctor Will said no, and then Boogie basically threatened him. Yeah, that's my that's my understanding from the from the gossip stories I've read. Uh, yeah, I mean it's I, I think I you know, some probably somewhat understandable from from Doctor Will's perspective. I think I remember he was a, he's a, a surgeon or something, right? Like a plastic surgeon. The guy probably has a, a a lot of money already kind of made up. Anyways, he probably doesn't need the the attention, whereas Mike Boogie probably does. But yeah, I mean from what I know, they they got an invite to. Uh, uh, to participate in an amazing race and, and will wasn't interested. And I don't think CBS was interested in boogie without will. It was a right. package deal, which is also, let's be honest. That's how boogie got on all stars and big brother in the first place. I mean, Mike boogie's not on big brother all stars. If, if he's not used as kind of a way to also get uh, will to, to sign on board and, and play up that chill town thing. Uh, Mike boogie as a solo act probably never even gets to be on that show. So anyways, but yeah, it was, I, I, there's obviously some very hurt feelings. I don't think uh, Mike Boogie's doing too well for himself in life these days. Uh, so there was obviously some animosity there. And, man, there's some chilling stuff, though. I mean, I, I obviously yeah. don't know any of the, the real details, but some of the stuff that came out with, like, I mean, there's stuff that was put into evidence where it was, like, screenshots of, of him holding, like, a gun to a computer screen that, like, had uh, photos of, like, Will's family and, uh, obviously crazy over the top stuff. So it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, I like to look at the, I mean, those, those guys were the reason that I fell in love with reality TV in the first place. And to see, uh, to see that the chill town dude, that's such kind of scary and weird odds. I mean, obviously Boogie's a very troubled individual at this point in time in his life. And that means we're, we're probably never going to get to see him again in, in that form. And, and based on his actions, we, we shouldn't either. Yeah. Don't, without, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And of course, Boogie years later went on by himself, uh, as one of the coaches on Big Brother without Will. And yeah, yeah it just wasn't the same. Like you said, it, it just it just wasn't the same at all. Uh, also, Survivor hasn't been on for about a year and a half. Uh, I know you love that. We used to watch Survivor and talk about it all the time. What can Survivor do better? Because, uh, you know, it's been a year and a half. So if you're Jeff Probst, you have all this time to sort of uh, think of new things. And, you know, not that it's been, it's broken. It's still a very, very good show. But what would you say uh, Survivor could do better? The thing I would say personally would be way less idols. I just, uh, it's just too many idols in the game. Have no idols at all, and people would be freaking out thinking that there were idols in the game. And just go back to basics a little bit, would, would be my suggestion. Well, it's interesting you say back to basics because uh, the kick that I recently got on in the last couple of years, I, I texted you about this, so you know, a bit of a heads up on it, but uh, Australian Survivor. Um, I've fallen in love with it over the last couple of years. Australian Survivor, way back in the day, used to be a thing as well. When I was in university, in the early days of Survivor, Australia tried to do a Survivor. remember watching it in university. I, I don't know if, I think it was just one season. Uh, the production value wasn't very great. Um, I, I think I stuck with it, but I don't remember anything about it. Didn't pay attention to it anymore. Um, but then they came back with a reboot in 2016 that I found out about a couple of years later after seeing, I think, something on Reddit about it. Uh, and I started to, to rip through them, and and I, I actually have to admit, um, I enjoy it more than the American one right now. Really? Uh, and they've had they've had a run of three or four really really good seasons. The production value is extremely high. Not so much in the first ones. Production value is still good, but they really kind of they're on par with the American ones uh, pretty much immediately after that. Um, and there there's a few things I like about it. One, um, the episodes are longer. 
Um, so instead of being constrained to, you know, essentially 42 minutes uh, without commercials um, on the American one, um, the Australian one usually runs at least uh, a 90 minutes, so over an hour with, uh, with, without commercials. Uh, and so there's a lot more character development that you're able to do. You're, you're, they, they're able to focus a lot more on some of the dialogue that happens in camp and really set up some of the storylines. Everything feels a little bit less rushed. You get to know everybody a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the flip, the flip side, you're talking about old school a little bit. I mean, what, what they've really done, especially in season two, three, four, um, what I loved about it was that it, it resembled old school Survivor to me. And I had forgotten how much I uh, missed and loved old school Survivor. And what I mean by that is some of the, like the competitions, um, it seems like, you know, and I understand why, because it helps build drama and they can edit it a certain way, but it seems like everything in Survivor these days always ends in a puzzle. I was and just going to say that. What you, I was just going to say that. what you do, yeah. every single thing ends in a puzzle. Yep. So to me, the quality of comps has really gone down over the years um, and I understand why they're doing it, but I don't, I don't like it. Uh, and the Australian one, I, unfortunately, I think they're actually going to get away from this a little bit from what I've read because they think that, um, some of the competitions become a little bit too predictable when you can based on strength and things like that. But that's the competitions that they've been doing in Australia really are more there. A lot of the, a lot of ones are, are similar to ones that we would have seen in the first 10, 15 years of survivor. Um, and it can be something, there's just, there's just a lot more physical, they're a lot more grueling. And so sure, the, the bigger athletes have a bit of a, an advantage on that and more endurance comps. So a certain body type has a, has a bigger advantage on that. But, but to me, it, it brings a lot more of the athleticism back into it. And it doesn't just come down to whoever is, is best at puzzles, which to me, I find a bit frustrating. I'd rather have more variety. I'd rather have more, uh, water comps. I'd rather have more, I don't know, just anything like that is, is what I enjoy a lot more. And then the other thing that they do, they have fewer twists um, than uh, the American one, at least in terms of like the idols. They still have idols. Uh, they still do all that. They've, they've done a, a few creative twists. I won't, I won't spoil them for you, but some interesting ones that probably would work out pretty well on the American side as well. But there's a little bit less of a component of like, you know, seemingly 15 different idols in play and anything mm-hmm. can happen. Um, and they also have one of the, one of my favorite reality. It would be right up there with with Doctor Will and, and Boston Rob is my uh, my favorite reality TV contestants of all time. Um, really? If if you yeah if you rip through that, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to figure out who it is. But um, huh. person was on on a couple seasons uh, and and just and and just exactly my type of my type of player and my type of personality and my type of humor. So um, yeah, I, I love the Australian Survivor. I've heard good things about Australian. Uh, South Africa as well. Um, I have yet to dip into those, um, but I've heard that those are pretty good too. So it's been, that's been one of the fun things about the pandemic uh, to a certain extent is, I mean, all this time we've had to watch TV. I was really strapped for things to watch. And so opening my mind to uh, checking out some of the international versions of Survivor was was, was pretty cool. Um, so those, those are some of the things I would, I would suggest that, to bring to the American one as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's, uh, it's funny you bring that up. I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, Speaking of watching uh, UK, the UK version, the Australian version, uh, my favorite reality show probably was The Mole with Anderson Cooper the first couple seasons. And they've made, I've watched the UK versions, the Australian versions. Again, production production value isn't as good as the um, American ones. But I randomly Google it maybe three, four times a year, The Mole, hoping it comes back or something. It's, it's kind of coming back. It's going on to Netflix. Uh, and I'm hoping... Really? that maybe a, a whole new legion of fans who didn't see the show, the original run 20 years ago 
will fall in love with the show because it was brilliant. The mole. I don't know if you ever watched it. I'm assuming you did. But uh, you know, hopefully, then they may might actually make new episodes because that show was way ahead of its time. It was amazing. Yeah, I remember, and I remember talking about this with you. I mean, way back in the day, and I, I had seen the mole. I remember the mole. I remember Anderson Cooper. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't remember getting into it that much. It would have been in the early days, and so I actually. I should go back and watch it uh, at some point in time, or it'd be great if they brought in a new version because it's uh, it would be cool to check out. The other the other one I just started watching. I mean, people will probably talk about this. I don't I don't know if you've watched it or not, but the it's been around for decades. But is the the challenge is one I had never gotten into before either. I've never seen uh, which that. Has no. a, I've heard yeah, it has a bit of a survivor. Yeah, yeah. No, I never I never gotten into it whatsoever. What what originally kind of appealed to me is more recently they started bringing in I think it used to be more of like a MTV like people who were on real world and like reality shows like that that I had never watched. More recently they they brought in uh uh people who are in a, a, other reality shows. So there's been some people from Survivor on it. There there's been a lot of people from Big Brother who have gone on it. Um and so that was the one I really started to rip through during the pandemic, which is, which is kind of cool. It's got some survivor, the challenge element, it's got some survivor components to it. Uh, the strategy is way different, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's some good ones out there at a time when uh, we kind of needed something a little bit extra to watch, but I would love to see the, the mole come back. I mean, oh. It would be interesting to, to see. Did Anderson Cooper host all those seasons or was it just, they mix it up? Just the first two and season two of the mole, I would put up against any reality show ever in terms of how great it was. And then, unfortunately, uh, it, it was it was uh, 2001. The show was on. That's obviously when 9/11 happened. So that for the show to have this component of like there's a saboteur amongst everyone. I remember reading articles about this, how the show yeah. didn't resonate with people because they were at the time, understandably, very you know uh, nervous and scared about you know someone trying to screw people over and a saboteur. It doesn't you know it's a, it's a reality show. It shouldn't have that effect, but I guess it did. So then they uh, they stopped it for a while. And then uh, Ahmad Rashad was the host for Celebrity Mole for a couple seasons. <laughs> Then they brought a new host in for regular people mole uh, a few years after that. Uh, it was it was okay, but nowhere near as good as Anderson Cooper. And it's disappointing. I've heard Anderson over the years talk about how the mole was so confusing and people didn't like the show and, and so on and so forth. It's so disappointing because Anderson was so good on the mole. It's like it, it sort of feels like he's trashing it, and it's just like yeah. it's just disappointing to me because he was really good in that, and it wasn't that confusing. It really wasn't. You had to yeah. use a brain cell or two, which is unlike most reality shows, even including ones I love, like Love Island yeah. and Too Hot to Handle. I love them, but you don't have to think at all. The mole, you actually had to think yeah. for a few seconds, and I think uh, maybe uh, it didn't resonate with audiences, but it's it's brilliant, the show. I'm not sure if it's on the Canadian Netflix soon, uh, probably just the American one. Hopefully it works its way to the, the Canadian one as well. Nice, nice. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to go back and check that out. I feel like I almost did went way back when we were at TSN. I think you almost talked me into giving it a shot. Uh, but I don't know if I, I don't think I actually did. Like I remember seeing bits and pieces, but yeah, no, I'll have to, I'll have to check it out for yeah. sure. Shame on you. The good thing is we're, we're starting to get some new seasons of everything here, hopefully pretty soon. I mean, with a couple, couple seasons that they're, they're banking right now for survivor for the upcoming year. And then, uh, big brother just around the corner here. It's, uh, it's a little bit better time. These are these are kind of like this is where my fandom still kind of kicks in. Like I've lost my fandom for sports a little bit just because I cover it differently. Like we were t- touching on before, this is like, I, I I watch reality TV shows like I used to watch sports. Like it's uh, I mean it's it's almost like you know Survivor is almost like the Olympics to me to a certain extent. As ri- as ridiculous as that sounds, but there's like uh, there's a, I watch it both physically and from a strategic perspective. 
uh, through kind of like a sport lens. Because to me, it, it, you know, it is it is pretty cool. I mean, if ballroom dancing was an Olympic sport for a while, then Survivor should be an Olympic sport. <laughs> I like that take. That's really good. Well, Gregor, uh, this has been an absolute blast. We could talk for another 17 hours, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. But uh, awesome discussion, my man. Uh, great to have you on the podcast. And uh, yeah, let's hope the Blue Jays can uh, string together some wins here and uh, really make an, an exciting summer for the Blue Jays. No, absolutely. It'd be nice to uh, get them back in Toronto eventually here too, maybe hopefully by September or something when that rolls around or at some point in time we get to the point where uh, baseball returns to Canada because it'd be, it's a, it's a little bit depressing just to have to watch, uh, you know, everything take place in Dunedin and, and now obviously Buffalo. It, I understand the reasons for it, but it's just still a little bit, uh, it's a little bit odd seeing so many people packed into a stadium down there for a team that, that should be up in Toronto. So hopefully Good news is on the way with vaccines and everybody getting protected and we can open up the border and, and get things rolling again. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely with the, you know, Jays against the Yankees in Buffalo and everyone's cheering for the Yankees. It's just it's obviously I'm the same. They don't have that home field advantage. So, yeah, well, thank yeah. you so much, Gregor, for, for this. It's been a blast and uh, we'll talk to you soon, my friend. Absolutely, man. Anytime. That was such a beauty discussion with Blue Jays columnist Gregor Chisholm. I really love how this podcast has given me the opportunity to talk with old friends who I maybe haven't chatted with for a while. He had so many great nuggets about the current and past Blue Jays, along with my boy John Gibbons. I especially loved our chat about Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. It's funny that we both thought the Seinfeld finale was actually great. And as I said to him, I truly hope Survivor goes back to basics and that the mole can become a big show again because it was fantastic. They have old episodes, by the way, of season two on YouTube. And finally, finally, a guest who correctly agrees with me that Dr. Will Kirby is the greatest big brother and arguably best reality show contestant ever. You can follow Gregor on social media at aptly named at Gregor Chisholm on Twitter. Thank you for listening to episode 67 of the H-Dog Pod. Bang. This has been the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Mm bang. Mm bang. Mm bang. Mm bang. Mm bang.